Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to the Beyond 50 radio program. I'm Daniel Davis. On the program today, we're going to be taking a look at certain things that many people want to know more about because we really don't get a very good education when it comes to money. In fact, most of us actually learn about money through our parents and their habits as well. Well, on the program today, we're going to learn a shocking revelation, at least that's according to our guest, that there is no money but only debt masquerading as money. The way our money is designed is the real cause of perpetual scarcity. We're going to discover our current financial system and the new developing systems that can end scarcity and find out about the true money revolution and what comes after Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. With more than 30 years of experience managing over $150 million in client assets at Merrill Lynch, Kristen learned all about the monetary system and finances. By 2008, set out to unravel and solve some of humanity's most crucial belief systems about monetary system itself. I'd like to welcome to the Beyond 50 radio program today our guest and author of the book, The End of Scarcity, Kristen Raguzin. Kristen, thank you for joining us here on the program. Oh, hi, Daniel. So nice to be with you today. Now, it's pretty exciting when somebody who works in the world of finance really trying to help people get ahead by saving and doing all these things that we've been taught about money to discover, hey, you know, we're kind of being hoodwinked here. Talk about what your journey was and your discovery, especially after 2008. Yeah, pretty dramatic. You know, I even grew up as a little girl explaining to my dad how the markets worked. (laughs) So at five years old, we were sort of entrained to learn about interest rates and the markets. Um, So I really always just was excited about it, thought it was a great thing. And certainly when I sat with people early on when I began working, um, I could feel how much pain people had around money, how many negative and non-constructive emotions. And I thought, gosh, I could really help empower them and get clarity on things and feel um, like all the different tools that out there could facilitate manifesting their dreams. And when 2008 came, I was lucky enough to see it coming ahead of time and um, get people out of the markets and whatnot. But when it arrived, things fell and were destroyed with such a level of despair uh, that I could see actually still I was missing something in my worldview. And that led me onto this journey, which led to the book, The End of Scarcity, to find out exactly what I was missing. And what I soon came upon was that actual money, which I think we we grow up or indoctrinated to believe is a thing, a separate thing that exists in society, um, independent of many other things, that we just have to go out and earn it and then decide how we're going to spend it or use it, um, wasn't really the case. And that, in fact, money has been designed many, many different ways throughout all of the recorded human history we have. And when it is designed correctly, oh, wow, do people thrive? We almost enter into Renaissance or Golden Ages, and people really are alive. And when it's created incorrectly, we get scarcity and suffering in the sense of constant pernicious not-enoughness that seeps into everything that we do, our relationships, and really feels like it's stealing our lives. So I was so excited when I found this because I thought, my goodness, we could create it correctly if it wasn't being done now. Now, and, first uh, of all, in fact, yes. Yeah. Oh, please, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, so let's take a look at, first of all, how it's created quicker, uh, the right way and then the way that you take a look at it and how it was created wrongly, I guess. Take a contrast to what those two things. You know, I think, I think the core of it begins with that money itself is supposed to represent our productive contributions. And, you know, when you think about it, I like to say that when we, we, you know, sort of find ourselves 
here we see the big humans around us, the sun, the moon, the stars, and money, right? And so we just accept it unconsciously. It's part of the landscape that we're moving around in. And we realize, oh, okay, you know, this is something important. We need to figure out how are we going to earn it. And already we're being conditioned to say that money is outside of us and that in order to access either the things that we long or would love to be part of and contribute or the work that we think we really want to do, that often that is sacrificed in the name of getting money. And so the first thing is to start to begin to change that relationship that in fact actually money itself only has value from what we create and contribute together and that the humans that are doing all of the um, creating products and services, all of that is actually where the power is. And money needs to be defined to support and represent our credit or our promise to deliver things to people. And in, in contrast, we are using a system where money is dead and that means that the Federal Reserve doesn't create our money supply, which I think many of us just sort of blindly believe. The Federal Reserve creates reserves which stay in the banking system. They, do, they don't become the dollars that we actually use in the real economy. The way the dollars come into the real economy is when someone walks into a bank, typically a commercial bank, and asks for typically a mortgage. And 97% of the money that we see circulating in our world, and whether we hire people or we get hired or we buy something or we don't, is dependent on whether that money is circulating near us. And so if somebody walks into a commercial bank and says, oh gosh, I need a loan for a home, a car, a college education, the bank simply, after they've assessed creditworthiness, is going to create that money on the spot from that person's promise to repay, there really are no reserves uh, that, that, that play into this. We've also been taught that the bank retains 10% in reserves. Again, this is more of a misnomer, doesn't happen anymore. Um, the bank extends the dollars by writing, typing $100,000 in the positive column when someone promises to repay. It's, we're not borrowing someone's money. There's no money in the reserve. The bank just creates it on the spot. But like a quarter, that's the head side. And the flip side, they also create in the minus column 100000 which is now the debt that we are bonded or promised to do that promissory note to repay. So when we spend that money, it looks like dollars. I mean, hey, we could open our bank accounts and say, hey, I see some dollars in there. But what we're really seeing is someone's mortgage debt because every dollar that's circulating that's not cash came into existence through that process. Someone walking into the banking institution and it was a plus 100,000 and a minus 100,000. So we don't see that the dollars in circulation actually need to be earned by borrowers in time to repay that debt. And every dollar in circulation basically has an expiration date on it because we know that, of course, when we pay back a debt, the debt is wiped out. But what we don't really know is the dollars are also. So when someone pays a mortgage or a college or any type of obligation that they're responsible to pay, they pay it off and it relieves them from that debt burden for, for a period of time, but it also drains society, like putting a hole in a, in a swimming pool or having the, you know, the um, drain open in a bathtub, that 100000 also is wiped out and there's less money circulating in society with every debt that is repaid. So you can start to see the precarious, um, strange, uh, very tense underlying foundation that this creates in society because we must, like a hamster running on a wheel, constantly have new debt. And the minute that someone repays that debt, we need someone else to take on more debt itself just to have money you know, to use. You know, it's a pretty fascinating cycle when you think about uh, the whole illusion of the whole thing. For instance, when you put money into a bank, 
it, it was taught at least by anybody that puts money in a bank is okay. Well, I have savings. That's my money, but it actually becomes the bank's money. And the reality right. of that is, as I was going to say, just to add to that is not only that, but now they decide how they're going to use your money. And I didn't really catch on to this and how that all worked. But I remember it was back in the late 1980s when you would see banks offering like these 90-day and 120-day CDs. You need a minimum amount of $2,500 on average to get into these things. And then what they tell you is you can't take your money out or you'll be penalized, you know, depending on how soon you actually take it out. And I thought to myself, penalize, that's interesting. So what are they doing here? Well, they're finding a way to secure that money so that they can use it and invest and they can make money off of your money. And I think to myself, why wasn't anybody ever teaching this in school to take our money and get it to work for us? And if it's an illusion, then how does that structure work? <laughs> I, it really is. When, when you start to open the box, it can, it can get really unnerving to some degree and, you know, some of the stuff that sounds bad is actually good in the sense that we do want banks to create credit. Creating credit is really important. Um, it's, it's the lifeblood of any functional, productive society. But I still argue that credit and debt are very different. Um, so the basis of investment capitalism, which I don't really think we have anymore. I don't think we've had it for a long time. So a lot of the criticism that we have about capitalism probably is not fair because we're dealing with a system that's really corporatism or hidden oligarchies that destroy middle classes and you know you you cannot get significant or viable class mobility per se if we use that term and you sort of have um, create dependency with welfare and then you also create welfare at the very tippy top because these systems cannot run on their own and they require all kinds of fancy footworking to make them stable. Just when we create money out of mortgage debt, there's a big difference between creating money out of non-productive debt versus creating it out of quote-unquote productive debt, which I like to call credit. And so if we just, um, you know, take a, you know, go down this bunny trail for a minute, when, you, when we look at, you know, maybe before the 80s into the 70s, when banks were a little bit closer to the 1934 It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey-style banking, meaning that they were part of the fabric of society, which many community banks still are, or co-ops and, and local banks, or they want to be very much. Uh, banks were doing a legitimate service of saying, hey, we're going to help you decide, to discern the, the creditworthiness of this business. What is the legitimate amount of productivity they're adding, uplifting to society? And could we create that viable credit so they can pay their suppliers and producers and facilitate creating the product or service for the community? You know, sort of almost hearkening back to the days when a corporation needed to get a charter to show that it had a positive intent for society to actually come into existence. And so if banks were in fact to be creating uh, loans or to creating credit that was legitimately investing in wonderful businesses um, that either the community or the bank was getting enough input, um, now here we would be creating money supply in a very productive way because those dollars in fact would be representing the promise to deliver or the credit uh, you know of, of what's coming which is going to uplift others with new jobs and that money circulating even if it was extinguished you know after the um, loans were repaid you'd still society would be left with a business that would be employing people wages could rise and um, a lot of functionality could produce off of that. However, 80% of lending that banks or money creation, because money's, again, money is created when a loan is created, um, deposits do not create loans. There's another misnomer that we've grown up with. We think, okay, you need, the bank needs to get deposits in order to create a loan. Strike that from your memory, not true, doesn't happen. A bank just has to be solvent, meaning it has to have enough capital, and that capital has to be functional, um, like a little um, you know, padding or a pillow behind our heads. And um, as long as they're 
they're solvent and they have enough capital, they could extend as many loans, create as much new money as borrowers were willing and capable to borrow. But the real problem here, and this is what I'm trying to illuminate, is that when that, that quote-unquote credit is created, which is really debt, 80% of it is for consumption. And so in the 70s, uh, people had to come with higher amounts of money as a deposit for a home because a home was seen more as a home rather than an investment or a speculative something. And so loans were created in a very different way. They certainly weren't available for college. And now 80% of our money creation or loans are for mortgages, some for college, and this is why we're seeing housing become absolutely unaffordable for the vast majority of Americans, where a house is 10 times salary now, used to be three times in the 70s, and you know a college education was virtually free in the 70s, and now we're producing indentured servants. And I'll tell you, this is only because we are creating uh, the, our, our money through this mechanism of, of uh, consumer debt and destroying investment capitalism and society really as collateral damage. Now, Kristen, in your book, The End of Scarcity, I first wanted to point out for listeners out there, it isn't a book that sits and tells you how to do things, although you will feel the arising of seeing things a lot differently. And uh, that's a very encouraging thing, first of all. But um, because it's in story form, uh, there was one particular story that's very much in line with what you're talking about here a way that maybe we can lend such some clarity to it. And it was when a couple goes to Washington, D.C. to hear Marianne Williamson speaking. And I'm going to go ahead and quote what you say here in the book. And it says, according to Marianne, instead of fostering and baiting our lowest expectations, she says, it's time that we had a department of peace and put our energy into developing institutions that represent our highest values now, what do you think that means and how should people see that? Because I agree with the lowest expectations. The American dream seems to have become the idea of low expectations that you basically get done with high school. And nowadays you go into debt with a student loan for a college that teaches you indoctrination and propaganda rather than any real thinking, especially critical thinking. Then you go out in the world and uh, you start to have children and then you find yourself getting a home and the car, that all this consumption uh, that we've been conditioned over decades to do. That's why we were called consumers in the first place. And then here you find yourself trying to pay off that mortgage, maybe pay for your child's education, possibly if you can achieve that at all. But it turns out maybe partially you're able to do that because of the guaranteed student loan available to all kids 18 years or 17 years. And so then you're in debt and thinking, why did I buy into this in the first place? And you find a lot of people very empty versus pursuing a life that actually achieves your highest values. Go ahead and talk about those two contrasts and how you see that playing out to almost as though we're being lured in to a life of low expectation. It's, I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's absolutely what's happening. And it's amazing that the root of all this is, is miscreating money or creating money as consumer debt. And everything can be transformed when we start to change that, which we can do easily as an alternative currency right away by ourselves. Um, you know, not, not really trying to take the system head on by any means, but in any case, um, it's, it's really quite stunning because people are busier than ever and usually not in good ways. You know, we, with, with as much information as we have, I don't really think we feel that wisdom has grown nor that our life, um, our life enjoyment or the quality has grown by any means. People are, are running, beat, trying to beat the clock on all kinds of levels and, um, Certainly to think, my goodness, do you mean that banking could actually be something that's productive? Could we put our, our values and, and believe that our institutions could really be representing that? And I think the awakening that we're all having today is we're seeing so much corruption in every different kinds of ways that we are, we're questioning our identities. And a lot of that becomes very destabilizing uh, in the sense that people say, it's too much, it's too overwhelming, I don't have enough time. 
but we have such power when we come together. And even to pause and reflect on these things, we have the, the solutions actually are so easy because we just have to find a small moment to withdraw from some of this. The, the problem is that when money is created as consumption debt, we know right away, okay, um, and it's extinguished when those debts are paid. We know we have to have, it, it creates an imperative that we have to constantly have more debt. If the government were to pay off its debt, we would have the greatest depression of unimaginable proportion because that's actually money we're using. Um, so right away we're set up, here's, you know, creating all these nonsense debts and to find the reason to create debt. So has college sort of been marketed as such a thing rather than a tangible, real calculation to say if you invest this amount of money, what is the productive value you're getting back? And are children really being raised to think critically and question, which is a very important thing with everything, um, with every idea I offer in the book. Um, they're all thought-provoking, and they really come back to saying, oh, my goodness, these people who were before us, they had this knowledge, and, um, and now it's ours to receive again. Um, we're, we're pushed at such a level to overconsume in order to feed that debt machine, not normal or wonderful consumption that we might want to explore, but overconsumption to really feed even some of that emptiness of the increasing amount of soulless living that um, most people are experiencing or that we feel the residue in every corner of society. And even the concept of work has been glorified to say that you don't have to work or, oh, let's get to laying on a beach and, and living some life of luxury. This also is, is a non-truth. Slaving away at a job that you hate and steals your soul is also a non-truth. But in the middle, finding and tuning into that calling of the unique creativity that is born in each and every human that every human has something unique and beautiful to contribute and each person creates more value in society work is actually good for the soul and meant to be a way um, in which it uplifts the individual and the community as a whole so all of these concepts need to be redesigned and as as money starts to also get redesigned, it automatically um, provides the basis for this. What Marianne was pointing to um, at her talk about the Department of Peace was often that we don't really create space to say what are our greater values. Um, you know, how do we want to contribute in this world? What do what do we what type of a world do we want to live in? And when we take time to make the statement of what we value and then put energy there, we start to build all different kinds of things in our world. And when we come together to do it, we do it quite quickly. Uh, the sad part is that when we misdesign the currency and we create it out of consumer debt, <clears throat> it requires this constant creation of, of consumer debt, repayment creation, repayment creation, and greater amounts that humanity truly cannot run at this pace. And I believe it's the basis of all wars that we see because um, the, what does create debt at a very fast pace um, when hum humanity is not keeping up with that treadmill is in fact a war machine. And so mm -hmm. we, you know, to get off this cycle, I don't think we can get off these constant um, productive creation of conflicts, new enemies, um, all different kinds of enemies, and funding a war machine without fundamentally uh, beginning to change and add different forms of currency. And when money is created properly, there is no need um, to drum up any random kind of growth uh, uh, or destructive type of speculation or um, to to downgrade the evolution of humanity into meaningless wars that destroy the lives of everyone when you really get down to it. You know, and it's so true. So like a little bit of history of money that I discovered you know, some years ago was uh, the Rothschild family, for instance. Uh, anybody who started to read or understand money sees that name pop up quite a bit. And they were a family that goes back to like the 1600s, as far as I know, maybe even further back than that. 
But they were, uh, it was actually one of the quotes by a Rothschild family member was, you know, you go ahead and give me control of the purse strings and I don't care who makes the rules anymore. In other words, literally saying, because I have control of the money, I have control of everything else. And that at the same time, they were also responsible for funding, as you called it earlier, the war machine. In other words, floating loans to countries who are in conflict with each other so that they can get the supplies they need to go to war. And in the end, once the war is done, then you're getting paid back by two countries that were at war with each other. And you're just kind of the middleman brokering the whole deal. And you think, okay, so you pretty much, as we were talking about, took a look at our lower expectations. The idea of debt is the same way. In fact, I was thinking as you were describing uh, what you were just talking about was I had an interview with a lady, this was some 15 plus years ago on the energy of money. And what she was talking about as I went to one of her workshops was that money leaks, in other words, how we spend money thoughtlessly or use energy thoughtlessly, they occur when you don't enjoy having it. And this is so true because if you think of somebody who gets themselves into a situation like you were talking about, perhaps they're at a job they can't stand, but now they're locked in maybe because of credit card debt or they've got a mortgage, you know, they have these responsibilities, they become enslaved. So that doesn't make anybody really happy because they're not really living their highest purpose. Now that being said, so what does a leak look like? Well, leaks occur when you're also spending money emotionally. In other words, I remember there was a time that I was having a rough time and this was back around 2009 is that, we, we would like go uh, out and get something to eat. And we were constantly going out to get something to eat. And it took me a little bit, but when I finally looked at what I was doing, I realized this is a money leak because I'm going out showing that I've got some semblance of control over my life by deciding with the money that I have that I could go out to eat. <laughs> but what changed when I became aware of that was this. And this, I think the listeners are really going to get a kick out of and certainly expand on it, but here it is. So when you begin to use uh, money, and I like to say energy because that's what it is. It's the energy to pursue something that you like. But when we started to decide, this was my wife and I at the time, to use money in a way that was fulfilling to us. So for instance, we were into photography and broadcasting, things like that. Why don't we go ahead and look at some equipment that we think we could use that would help us expand, for instance, our creativity. So we thought of a green light, green uh, lighting system. So that way you can do special effects, things like that. Well, because we didn't have the cost of the equipment, we said, okay, we now know what the cost is. Let's pursue that. And until we actually saved the money, which didn't take long, that was the amazing part about it, to get it, we didn't buy it on credit. We literally bought it. It was paid for. And there it was in our pocket now. The caveat to that was this, that we started getting projects from people where that money we spent, it was like, say, four or $500, actually came back to us by doing a creative project, and then they would pay us to do this. And I think we came in the neighborhood of six or $700. So this project, not only did we focus our money on something we wanted, something that really appealed to our creativity, but after it was paid for debt-free, that it actually, we got the money back, say, twice to three times as much in projects, which also gave us the experience we were looking for to use the camera equipment in the way that we wanted to. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, it's so beautiful. You know, it, it really points to the root of this, which is that um, my, we created money as a tool in society. And we did it because we've decided it's better to live together in society. Even if we get tired, we annoy each other every once in a while, we still have said, you know what? Um, we are, we get to know each other. We each have creative talents and only in the creating and giving do we sort of get ourselves reflected back to us. And then we get an even more expansive view of maybe what we want to create and what we want to experience next. Um, so this hits at that root that abundance or this illusion of scarcity is is the the untruth of life and in fact this is meant to be an abundant place where we are expanding and growing and challenging ourselves to say how do we want to contribute and explore next and um, yet because we're conditioned 
to um, believe that money is scarce or that we have to get money first in some sort of neg negative pain-oriented way in order to access that joy, we live with everything sort of in an inverted form. And, um, and then it's very easy to get depressed and to make sacrifices to think that it's okay to take some kind of job that the paycheck is enough of a payment for that when in fact we're losing not only the sense of our soul in that but also the truth which is that humanity is quite powerful and born wealthy we're born inherently with the ability to contribute our imaginations our passions all the resources on this earth and as we come together to decide that we want to exchange things with one another, we can recreate money where it wanted to be created from the beginning, which is a properly constructed tool to assist us in creating our exchanges and exploring that adventure with one another. So, you know, the, the idea is we, we're, in, we're coming from this old world which is beginning to dissolve. We can see it. Um, you know, if, if we've talked about it for a long time, we're seeing it really today that many systems look as though those tent tacks are being pulled up and we're experiencing some, some instability in all different kinds of ways, which we make it quite more about uh, as the next year comes. At the same point in time, we see this new world beginning to emerge with, with old wisdom of just in fact that money was supposed to be a supportive, actually not nearly as important, but functional tool, and that what is important is what we want to create, what we want to experience, and how we can be productive in a beautiful way that honors ourselves and everyone else. Um, it doesn't mean that people should quit their jobs or, you know, or just go bankrupt or not pay bills or any of these kinds of things. We have to be personally responsible. And just like, as you said, where you decided to do that, debt for you focused on your interests and your passions, and that changed the energy. And even physiologically in our brain, when we move more to the things that we love, and we, we focus on the positives of what we're going to experience or what we're going to contribute. Different centers in our brains activate. The neocortex really gets blood to it. Um, all of a sudden, new ideas that we didn't see before, new solutions start to become apparent. And when we're really suffering, when we're believing in this illusion of lack and this illusion of scarcity, which can seem quite real, the lower and reptilian sort of survivor brain is the only center that gets activated. So even when people try to help us, we can't hear them or it seems too hard. And so it's amazing. In, in our culture, we sort of tell this story of stuckness, not enoughness. When we get a little break, so I think that pathway that you and your wife took, which was saying, we're going to take a pause, we're going to take a breath and get a new view on this, focus on what we love, all of a sudden the different energy systems in the body start to change. And what seemed impossible before or like a problem now becomes an opportunity. And even with enough energy, it becomes a gift. And I think we're collectively here at Humanity. Um, we're starting to realize, whoa, wait a minute. Could it be possible that our problems are not this vast political divide that we're seeing or tremendous confusion? Or even what the heck are they doing with economic policy and interest rates and what's the banking system and all these other questions that we have? Is it, is it going to argue about that or social issues that are certainly much more prevalent in the, in the uh, regular dialogue than they were X number of years ago? And I like to say that's the familiar old territory. You know, we've read, we've, we've worn those treads well. And we're starting to get the feeling that those conversations really aren't that productive. Um, maybe they make us feel better for a small period of time, but they're, they're producing more and more separation and even fracturing down into families. And I think that's a good thing in the sense that, um, that it's starting to dawn on us, maybe the solution is not here. And the solution is not there. The solution is actually in that our, we, we, we are abundant beings and that it's our contributions that are the real, what do we want to experience? And that the real issue is monetary. 
and in in communities and in the history of the past five or six thousand years every time society thrived whether it was through an alternative currency or the national currency when it was created correctly life changed and so today in the united states communities can come together and start readily creating alternative currencies and they can do them correctly as they've never been done really um, in recent history on this scale and scope and start to change their local uh, town, county, um, space that they live in beautifully, legally, um, in all kinds of ways just by starting to explore some of these ideas. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the ideas you talk about is a true money revelation, uh, revolution, I'm sorry, that may be better than Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Go ahead and describe what that is. Uh, that, and then we also have sort of a, a dark creature that's in the closet, but it's of the whole world now, and that's with the Green New Deal, which we'll talk about in a minute. But let's talk about the new, the true money revolution. Yeah, you know, I like to call it the unradical revolution um, or the the revolution that's really always been waiting to happen. When I first discovered that we were using consumer mortgage debt as money temporarily, you know, that every dollar had an expiry date on it and how all people were enslaved by this, because even people with money, when they put money into savings, that money is going, it's, it's all money that we see is borrower's debt. And so the stability of all money is dependent on the borrower being able to run fast enough on that hamster wheel. And that's why a credit crisis is always underlying our systems, whether they pop their heads out like they have again recently. Um, but it's, you, it never goes away when you create money as consumer debt. So when in 2009, when the uh, Bitcoin white paper was written, sort of um, it's starting to now say, hey, look, gosh, people peer-to-peer could start creating money without the government. And here's how you do it with fantastic math, um, you know, uh, and, and all these very difficult math problems that computers would have to solve. We could actually prove that, you know, who owned this token or this dollar of value and then passed it on to someone else. So when the blockchain, which is, is like an accounting book, many people don't know what the blockchain is. It sounds really kind of clunky, literally and whatnot, but it's just, it's just a tally. It's just a sheet saying, I gave it to you. You gave it to John. John gave it to Sarah, who gave it back to me. And we have, um, and it's, 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 it's Ill, immutable, which means it cannot be changed, and anybody can look at it. It's public. So the blockchain, much like the internet, is this phenomenal new technology creation that is going to continue to change the world that we're living in. And so as Bitcoin, which is just really digital gold, I don't think it's any fancier than that. Um, There'll only be 21 million. By 2040, they'll all be out in circulation. Um, it's, it, it does help break open the consciousness, but it's not really a revolution when it comes to money or a big, grand, beautiful change um, because it still takes its value on being scarce. And, of course, it's highly volatile. And when anything is scarce, it can be manipulated. It can be owned by someone with dominant wealth. Um, if it were to really circulate as a money form, someone with dominant wealth could get on the opposite side of the trade and start to just accumulate it all, or what we would say corner the market, and then take it out of circulation and put it on the shelf. That's the problem with gold itself and diamonds and things that we perceive as being scarce. So money was really meant to be an equal sign, um, to have legitimacy when the two values of the trade matched. So if somebody had seven and they find a three plus four, you have an equal sign. And so money is not meant to be scarce to have money. It's also not meant to be unlimited. It it, to have proper value that the quantity of money circulating in society should be fluctuating, but always equal to how productive more or less the people are at any given point in time, much like an ebb and flow of a tide rather than a boom and a bust of an economy, um, which is, again, what comes from creating money as consumer debt because humans can't run at that pace. 
So right. the issue, you know, so, so herein lies the issue that we can take the positives from this cryptocurrency revolution, which is the blockchain, this technology that might allow us to verify the value or even the creditworthiness of other people um, rather than getting sucked into um, some, m most of the projects out there today in the cryptocurrency world are just a reiteration of speculation, wealth extraction, the, the sense of scarcity, trying to get, having to gather more numbers to be okay. And again, this is based on a false premise of life rather than understanding that we're vastly abundant and that we can create new every time that we are so called and inclined to do so. You know, it's funny when you think about what you had just said. I was, uh, uh, it came to mind, if you remember, the Beanie Baby craze. Remember <laughs> those things back in the 80s? I sure do. Yeah. It was really funny, the story about that, when you really see the true story behind what had happened is, so you got, there are certain Beanie Babies that you could get a hold of that were worth about $10,000. I mean, it was just crazy what was going on. But the genius behind the guy who created it was the fact that he played on the fact that people don't want to feel of so, uh, a sense of loss or being left out. And the Beanie Baby craze was a perfect example. This guy purposely would only do limited runs on certain uh, Beanie Baby characters, for lack of a better word. And so there went the bidding wars. Oh, I want that line, and that's worth $5,000, and so now it's worth 6000 because there were only 300 of these created, Right. But then it turned out as the internet came on board, that thing faded pretty fast because people started realizing, well, these things aren't as scarce as they're, we're making ourselves be led to believe. And usually in scarcity, that's when people make irrational decisions anyway uh, versus like the abundance model, which you're talking about. Now, the other th cool thing about this is that you talk about a producer credit system with self-issued credits. So the first thing I thought of as I was reading that was, you remember the uh, movie Phenomenon with John Travolta? Oh, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so there was that scene, a guy comes into his shop and he says, I need my truck fixed. And it goes, great. Well, this guy over here, he needs a well, and I know how to do solar panels. So he just did this, you know, little swap and exchange that each one of us have a talent or skill that somebody else needs. Why don't we make that happen? And he was like, Okay. <laughs> but it, it, it is that simple and, and, and more interesting too, Kristen, is this. So because we're not sure how the monetary system's going to go now, we're hearing a lot of ugly things arising, you know, as far as, uh, you know, the superinflation, hyperinflation, all this, um, which is a, a kind of a different but the same on the subject. But for some reason, late in December last year, YouTube was suggesting some guy who does retro video gaming reviews, you know, on like Nintendo. I thought, well, I've got one of those sitting in the closet. So I started watching this. And so for the next month, I'm watching this as these different people that he would talk to, uh, collectors of video games and video game systems. And you start realizing because they would also go out and they would do some shopping for new and used games, but then they were also trading games or systems. And it was really cool how this community of gamers actually were creating what you might call their own monetary system. Sometimes cash was exchanged, sometimes games or equipment was exchanged. But I thought to myself, this seems to be this community that's figured out a way that they don't have to worry about money too much because the bartering system made sense on value, on real value. And that's kind of my takeaway. I never started getting new game systems. I think I bought one or two new games, but it's still sitting on the shelf. But the fact was that you see that in action and you realize that's really all around us that the true idea of wealth is how wealthy, first of all, you feel inside, how you want to take that, that wealth you have in you and share it with the world as well, and that you'll find like-minded people and you build relationships to do the same thing. And so that's how I see, for instance, as you were talking about the producer credit system. Go ahead and explain more for our listeners about that. Yeah, it really is sort of the phenomenal breakthrough that um, people people have known throughout the course of history. I was just working on a survey that I wanted to make available for people so they could really self-assess how much 
they're living in scarcity or living for the money and versus how much actually living living life you know really and and to to look at that to look at how we oscillate during the day all behavior is controlled um, through the sense of scarcity, right? The scarcity of time, the scarcity of meaning or of resources or of money. And it's, it's still infused in our culture. It's to be smart. We're sort of indoctrinated how we're going to beat it. And yet the truth is we need to get off the merry-go-round. We, we, you, listen, you can get back on the merry-go-round, but we just need to take a break and get off the merry-go-round for a moment and get a much bigger picture to get to get an overall view to say, wait a second, just what you're pointing to, we create all the value, the products and services that we use for money. And I like to say in the end of scarcity, that money and wealth are actually completely separate. And when I would say this to people, they would say, well, what do you mean? Well, what, what, what is wealth then if it's not money? Wealth is everything that we create and produce together. It's everything that we buy with money. Now, some of the things that we may have created may, again, be pointing to a lower degradation of humanity. But regardless, every single thing we see around, uh, around us that, that can be purchased – is wealth, but it also comes from all human imagination, passion, labor, and and we see this interconnectedness of us. You know, just to drink your morning cup of coffee, how many humans were required to get you the cup, the water, the coffee beans, the yeah. the, the power, right? It's inconceivable how integrated we are for every single thing. And yet, <laughs> um, no, right? That real quick is uh, I remember I did this exercise and the guy put out what the exercise was because he was doing a, 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 a coursework, if you will, on money and how we think about it. It was really cool because what I've seen, what I was supposed to do with the exercise, it changed the way, for instance, when I was going to work, how I see my boss. I'm like, well, this guy's not any better than I am. Sure. The illusion is he can fire me or she can fire me if they want to. But the point is without all these other interdependent relationships, this business does not exist. The person that brings the product or the service, you know, to the staff that actually just, and it became amazing how it immediately put my boss on equal footing. Like we're in this together, you, you know, you're just because yeah. you're the guy running the company doesn't mean, you know, and, and it changed the way I thought about everything, especially like what That's you're talking right. about. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is at the most core existential root of our being. And when we start to really have that echo and radiate through all of us, through our mind, it does change. I mean, that that's like putting a key in a lock and opening a really important door because we start to feel the abundance that is part of our nature. I, you know, I, I often say every single person is born wealthy, that that wealth is inseparable from who we are. And yet, you know, our daily lives sort of reassure something else. But when we stop and we pause and we say, wait a minute, even three plus four equals seven. Well, they both need each other. The buyer needs the seller. The seller needs the buyer. And this is the consumer needs the producer. The producer needs, this is a dance. And this whole life, for as much as we're totally inseparable from each other, we're each also completely unique. And all of that, that so this, this sort of seemingly paradox needs to be honored. And in that, we start to produce a really balanced life. Money was supposed to be designed as a mere technology like the phone is to a conversation or, you know, a car is to, to the transportation. Money is to the wealth exchange and creation. It's just supposed to be a normal, neutral technology that's, that's created correctly so that it assists that wealth creation and exchange and interaction with one another. Um, so, but first we can't really see properly until, you know, that aha, wait a minute, this is always equity share. And now all these centers of our brains activate, we see new possibilities and um, not everybody wants to be the boss, you know, maybe people don't want that much responsibility, but they still have a completely, you know, inextricable value and then their life 
also creates value in all these different kinds of ways. Um, so that's how these new alternative systems, they're going to come from the proper perspective of life. And then money actually gets designed correctly so that it supports wealth creation, legitimate wealth creation, and we get to build societies that honor human life rather than using human life as a battery in order to produce some ridiculous financial system that actually has no stability in it anyway. Right, and hence the Green New Deal that you see being tossed around. And this has been a new system cloaked as this great idea about how we're saving the planet, but when you really look into the meat and the and the potatoes of the whole thing, it really has more to do with a continued enslavement system. So basically, it's communism cloaked as the idea we're saving the planet. And one of the uh, backbones of this is the idea of the redistribution of wealth. So even people who haven't earned or, let's say, produced, if you will, a level that could garner them anything, let alone any wealth, as you were talking about earlier, is the idea that, well, people could just simply sit around and they can get paid for it and, or, you know, given something for it. And as human beings, that's really unnatural. I mean, we like to be lazy. There's no doubt about that. But it's like I like to tell people, I'm lazy by nature, and I, and I love being lazy. However, as a result, if I'm going to enjoy that part of who I am, I need to also learn how to be more efficient to get the job done, whatever needs to be done, but getting it done well, not, you know, really putting effort into it. And I also find things that I really enjoy doing, and I know this goes for all of us, that you'll put the effort in and time just seems to pass. It's sort of like you're getting in what they call the flow. Now, putting all that aside, now the idea of the producer credit system, how would that work when you look at these older generations in their 50s, 60s, 70s, even though they're, you're seeing better health in these people? I always tell people on the show, listen, you guys out there, start really taking care of yourself, you men, because the women are starting to look fantastic in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. You know, it isn't the little old lady pushing the cart down the street anymore. These are active people. The point being is, but how would you address that, you know, if people who are within that age group and older are thinking retire and maybe they can't contribute to the workforce as we know it? How would that work? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we don't we don't need everyone to be a producer of an alternative currency. We just need a few pillars of society or in communities. Ideally, farmers. I think farmers are sort of the most wonderful group of people who could start to extend an alternative currency properly, and it would change um, all of society. Builders, healthcare practitioners, um, educators. So any type of um, reputable business or um, producer in the society could start to say, hey, look, I really get the point of all this. And actually how the money is designed is the basis of freedom. And it's the basis of the quality of life. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. You also take a look at the BRICS nations using a combination of the scarcity model with the new currency they will be introducing and the abundance model with tying the currency's value to commodities. So real value again. These that are probably coming in the next year or two, and people are quite concerned about them, which I think is uh, legitimate. We all, we all have to be less naive. We need to be willing to look at really the overall um, landscape, and that usually currency creation is the way that people have been controlled, you know, whether it was just that level of consciousness to keep stability at that point. And I think we are growing past it. We're ready to have more self-responsibility and having a life of dignity where work is soul fulfilling. We know that if everybody was on a universal basic income and robots were doing the work, we might have quite a few instances of unbelievable societal depression and lack of meaning. Um, just as you said, it was unnatural. We came here. I, it's, it's really, um, I, I don't know if restful or purposeful is, is, is a more, more appropriate word than laziness per se, because I think we're reacting to this unbelievable underlying push that's also unnatural. When you look at nature, the birds and, the, and, and all the different, you know, the movement of the trees, it's going together in a symbiotic form. Humanity is the only thing that seems to stick out of that pattern. 
And when producer credits begin to come as a proper alternative currency where people are issuing uh, their alternative currency backed by a certain amount of product or service to deliver, limited by supply and demand, can be used with paper, um, can go on the blockchain where it would get greater scale and scope, and they can explore in their communities how this can be done. The book will give some beginning of that thought. And, but, you know, this solution has been put into society time and time again, but now we can do it like no one has done it before. It will create the strong river of freedom so that even as all the different types of currency changes come that we may see in the next year or two, and if a central bank digital currency comes and as people are fearing that that money gets turned off, um, really as a mechanism as of control, but packaged up and sold in a heartstrings type of way through climate change. And it's not really about that. And humans really lose all their freedoms if there's only one form of money. And forever, community currencies have been um, used. And um, they're a wonderful legal form of way to to open up those channels to access the real wealth that we have and then to legitimately, you know, anybody can create an alternative currency or money, but is it legitimate when it's backed by a certain amount of product and service, when it's verified that the quantity issued is, is checked by supply and demand? You now get a legitimate form of alternative currency that is so powerful um, that people will really retain the freedom over the, and the, the ownership of their own labor and be able to decide in their communities how do they want to shape their communities and what do they want for the future. Um, a beautiful world is waiting for us. Our ancestors are sitting on the edge of their chairs praying that we are the people who finally get this done correctly um, and with staying power because of some of the technology exists. As many people before us did it correctly, but they weren't able to maintain it. Yeah, it's not easy because in the end, uh, as I was talking about earlier, it's about building relationships. And when you think about, for instance, the idea of money, especially, say, the Federal Reserve, whatever it is, <clears throat> it's simply a tool. It's a promise that for this, I'm exchanging value for something that I need now. And so you give it to somebody who, in turn, has the freedom to decide at any given time or place how they can use it in exchange for something of value from someone else. And so you realize with all this how important it is to have good relationships and you take a look at, for instance, credit and how people treat it. How many bankruptcies do we see every year that, for the most part, not for the ones that were out of your control, like, you know, medical bankruptcies, things like that, but literal credit bankruptcies, I think, average somewhere right around $8,000 where somebody had a credit card, they got out of hand, they didn't want to make the payments because, after all, they don't know who that person is. They have no relationship with that person whatsoever. So sure, writing off that debt's easy for them, a little painful, but mostly it's easy versus a really good friend or a family member that you borrow the money from. That's a whole different relationship altogether. And that's where we got to get back to is the, what it means to keep your word, to do what you say you're going to do. And the direct result of following through <clears throat> with this is that you're going to be a better person. You're going to feel good because you've been doing the right thing. And I just think that's that right. just doing things so wrong for so long, we don't know what the difference is. Well, you know, it's, it's really, really true. We, we're all coming off of the commodification of life or a transactional life. I've had a couple moments where I've been super busy, been at the, you know, running into Starbucks or someplace to get a coffee, being impatient in life, and, and almost having my whole life flash for me saying, Kristen, what are you even rushing for? You know, are you just trying to get your stuff so you can go sit on your couch and have your stuff and what? You know, and, and sort of this whole thing has been indoctrinated as a payoff to to not question the greater questions, but also the greater questions become difficult to question without pathways of alternatives. And so what I what I love about the end of scarcity is that the pathway, this positive, positive pathway of alternative to keep us energized is in the book. Um, and it's the conversations like this that we need to start having with one another more broadly. 
because life really is nothing without relationships. And everything is a relationship from the most um, surface, whether we're seeing someone in a street passing by or interacting with a store clerk, to the most intimate of our spouses and children and parents. Life, everything is always only in relationship. And so money itself was meant to be designed so that it honored the relationship of the giver and the taker and that we continue to develop in knowing each, knowing ourselves and what we give to each other and how that's reflected. There is the root of a meaningful life and a life that's worth living and work that's worth doing in all the most simplest of ways. And through that, we would fuel and up-level humanity. So for all the suffering and poignant times that we go through, that they have sort of a richness. And um, and then we, we also become much less scared when uh, we have big societal shifts or when those with limited points of view say, hey, look, we're going to come out with this totalitarian, totalitarian form of of you know money or or you know really amp up this belief this false belief in scarcity we can say we understand thank you very much okay i'm going to honor that but i'm also going to put my energy into these alternative ways and we sort of bless the whole mess but also really sit in the seat of power and tremendous power that we have when we come together in the beautiful truth of life, which is that it is an abundant flow and that we were Mm. meant to come here and live this adventure together. Agreed. Definitely. In fact, when people think of scarcity, I said, did you know that you're more abundant than you realize? And somebody might say, and this might be somebody who's having financial trouble. I'll simply say this. Uh, How many ideas do you have a day about anything? And then they'll realize, well, I have a lot of them. And so when you don't explore that idea, what happens to it? Well, it just goes away. Is there another idea that replaces that? Well, yeah, it keeps coming and coming. What would it mean to you if you actually started exploring these ideas and putting them into a physical reality? What do you think would be different about your life? And I've had a couple of times over at least my adult lifetime where people would come back to me sometime later and say, you know, I started putting that emotion. I didn't realize that I was more abundant than I really realized I said that's because you were conditioned to believe that you had lack. That's this is conditioning. It has it affects all of us through advertising and marketing and public relations. It always tells us we're not enough. Books like The End of Scarcity let you know you need to break that conditioning down back to the root clay, <clears throat> take away the non-essentials until the truth is revealed. And that's exactly what that does. Now, Kristen, first of all. Thank you for being on the program to share this work. This is a great storybook. I think it's fantastic. And give uh, people a website, how they can find out more about you and your work. Oh, thank you so much. You know, um, the easiest place is to come to theendofscarcity.com, the name of the book. You'll come right to my website or my name, Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N, Ragason, which is R-A-G-U-S-I-N, KristenRagason.com. Um, you can sign up for a newsletter. I'm going to have lots of resources. Um, you know, I'm just trying to catch up with the speeding train here. You can join a group, a private group on Facebook where we're going to brainstorm um, how, how communities who want to put this into action um, can begin to do so. And um, you'll an event schedule I'm going to be doing more live speaking, also talking to different groups. And, of course, the book itself is available everywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple um, can be ordered from independent book sellers, and it's on Audible. So I encourage people just to – the book really is written narrative nonfiction. I wrote it for my mom, who kept on saying, more simple, more simple. So it should return the education that we should have had in the first grade. Um, and it's easy to read it over again. And really, those first few chapters are going to break open the binding where we start to say, whoa, okay, right, this is how it works. And then to show you all the evidence of how the new systems are emerging and how this really might be um, a greater work about our, our bigger birth that's happening as well. So please come join me, spread the word together. 
Um, it's never too late. Every single breath and moment we can choose something new, no matter how poorly or badly we were feeling the moment before, um, life is waiting for us. Absolutely. And it's time for you not only to run to it, but also experience how much quicker life runs to you as you move toward it. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us here on the program today. Oh, thank you, Daniel. What a pleasure. This is such a joy. We want to thank you, the listeners out there, for tuning in. You can also discover more at beyond50radio.com. That is the number 50. We do encourage you to sign up for our weekly e-newsletter and stay up to date with what's going on in the world of Beyond 50, as well as our upcoming shows. I'm Daniel Davis. Thank you for joining us. This is the Beyond 50 radio program. And remember, wherever you are is where you should be. Have a great day. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.